You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast, episode 21, Forgotten Concepts in Nutrition, Food and Death. All right. Before we jump into this episode, I want to go over a couple announcements. I have created a new tincture. It is a bear clover or a mountain misery tincture, or the scientific name in the rose family, Chamabisha foliarosa. It is an interesting plant because it grows only in a very narrow region of the Sierra Nevada mountains or there is an Australian variety. I have done lab testing with UC Davis to figure out the nutritional value of this plant and the essential oil properties of this plant. I have then created my own tincture blend using an ethanol extraction and a double decoction method where you add a little bit of tea back in. This plant historically was used by Miwok Native Americans in the Sierra Nevada mountains that used it in teas and it was used to treat anything from arthritis to viral infections. And come to find out through this testing that I did with UC Davis, it has pretty powerful antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties, very similar to what is found in green tea. It has a lot of cations in it. It also has quercetin, which we've talked about quercetin before. It is a very potent anti-inflammatory compound. So if you're looking for a tincture you can take daily that is going to change the inflammatory properties and get you some antioxidants in. And I'm pretty proud of this. This is the only thing like it on the market. Matter of fact, it's the only one on the market. Nobody's using this plant at all for medicinal purposes that I'm aware of. People may be using it personally, but there isn't a single product I could find on the market. So it's very unique. And that's really what I wanted to bring to the market is something original and unique and that isn't being done because I think this is a very, very valuable plant, not only on the landscape, but in the human body. And I've wildcrafted this bear clover off of the landscape personally. So, I mean, I have direct contact through the entire process and I can control the entire process when I'm creating it. So if you're interested in it, check it out. It's on my website. It's on Etsy. If you go to ancestralelements.com under the nutrition tab, there's a drop-down menu. You can click on supplements and you can find it there. All right, eating death. This episode is going to be focused on one central question. And that question is, what is food? I'll start out by giving you kind of the boring textbook definition, but then we're going to dig a little deeper into that question. And we are going to lay out a framework for what food is and how it relates to not only your body, but the external environment surrounding you, whether it's nature or your house or anything on the planet for that matter, and how it all interacts. So you might be sitting here thinking, what does death have to do with nutrition? And really, it has everything to do with it. Because once you start asking yourself the question, what is food? Then it starts to become pretty clear when you start peeling away the surface layers of this question. So the textbook definition would be anything that 
is nutritious that organisms eat, drink, or absorb. But I don't know. I don't really find that definition very helpful. It doesn't explain what food actually is. And I was thinking about this last week as I had an entire deer shoulder to break down and to put into a slow cooker so I could braise the meat down. And as I was sawing through the bone, I just kept thinking, well, reading a part of this animal. This is just a shoulder. It contains the humeral shaft, the scapula, tendons, ligaments, musculature. It's a part of a deer. And really, that's what food is. It's just parts of species, parts of animals, parts of plants, parts of fungi, parts of bacteria. You see what I mean? You're eating body parts. You're eating parts of species. That's what food is. That's what you're actually eating. You get nutrition from these dead parts of species. That's the real definition of food. Food essentially is death. You don't get food without death. It doesn't matter if it's plant, animal, fungi, algae, bacteria. As soon as you consume it, it's dead. Even if you look at a lion eating, say, a gazelle alive, as soon as that muscle comes off the bone, it's dead. Same thing with plants. As soon as you pick them, they're dead. As soon as those roots come out of the ground, they're dead. So you're building your body from these parts of dead species, dead materials, and they become your body. So it's almost like they get reconstituted and start living again. Your cells essentially bring those broken dead parts back to life in a different form. It's this cyclical nature. And then what do animals do and what do humans do? They poop. Remember that book, Everybody Poops? That's got to be one of the best books ever written, really. And so animals propagate more growth. That's how a lot of plants spread. That's how a lot of plants propagate, is through fecal deposit. So it's this very, very cyclical nature that is highly integrated into the natural environment that we really aren't too conscious of anymore in this day and age. We still take part in it, but we essentially outsource death. We outsource the processing of the animals and the processing of plants. Think about when you buy spinach at the grocery store. You don't have to process that spinach. You don't have to go pick it and trim the stems and wash it. It's all clean and prepped and just ready for you to use. But somebody's doing that. Somebody's growing the spinach and picking the spinach and processing the spinach. But you're not. But when you take part in the system of agriculture, you outsource death. You outsource the processing and the breakdown to a large extent. And what that does is it starts to change people's mindsets about food. Have you ever known people that have been scared to touch meat, scared to touch hamburger, scared to touch a chicken, a whole chicken? Those are people that have never probably seen real chickens or interacted with a live chicken. And definitely people have largely never seen chicken slaughtered or done it themselves. That was common, very common practice, just 50 years ago even. And we hardly see it now. It's really, really rare that we see slaughtering of animals. We've become divorced from that practice largely, unless we hunt or raise our own animals for animal husbandry. And it's interesting that that textbook definition of food jumps right to nutrition, because then the question becomes, well, what is nutrition? And if you look at that definition, it's vitamins and minerals that 
feed a biological system, which is true. But again, you're skirting around this idea of how to get those things. What it actually is becomes a very, very important question. And how you get it in a sustainable way becomes an even more important question. And that is an ongoing battle, essentially, with conservationists and activists on many, many different landscapes right now. A lot of people just want to leave no trace, right? They don't want to touch anything in nature. They just want to let nature do its thing. And that might sound good at first thought, but what that leads to is it leads to uncontrolled environments and it leads to a lot of unnecessary death and a lot of choking out of diverse populations of species. And what I mean by that is there is this idea of invasive species, so species that were brought to a particular place from another place, either accidentally or on purpose. I'll give you one example. So the hills of Northern California all around me right now are green. They are green because of an invasive species that was brought here from Europe called wild oats, okay? The golden hills of California that you hear in songs and literature and you see on TV, nice rolling hills of Napa or Sonoma County, that is an invasive species. That species of oat and grass should have never have been here. It was never here until a couple hundred years ago. And what that does is it chokes out native flora and fauna. So you start limiting not only native diversity but of species, but diversity of species in general, because it starts altering the habitat. And so there's this idea that gets thrown around a lot, and it's this kind of war on invasive species, right? You should over-harvest the invasive species to save the native plant population and restore the natural habitat to the way it once was. And honestly, it's just not very practical. And a lot of times invasive species are extremely well utilized. There's a use for wild oats. There's a use for a ton of invasive species. You know, there's animal examples as well. Look at iguanas in, let's say, Florida. People hunt iguanas unregulated. They cause a lot of damage to vegetation. And so there's an open season on iguanas. And you can make great taco meat or whatever you want from iguana. You know, you have also pythons in the Everglades. I don't know if I'd be eating a lot of python just due to, you know, PCBs and kind of toxicity because they live so long. But some of these are quite destructive to the habitat and need to be actively managed. Feral hogs are another really good example. Pigs destroy so much habitat. They destroy people's crops. They destroy natural landscapes all across the country. We have feral hogs here in California, and they destroy a ton of farmland and habitat. And there's an open season on feral hogs for hunting. And that's such a prolific species that you can take as many pigs as you want, and they'll just keep populating. They don't really stop. I think there's an idea of we've caused so much destruction to the habitat that we can no longer use it in a sustainable way, and that conservation through use is no longer possible. And a lot of that kind of stems from this kind of market hunting era, you know, of the early 1900s, where we sold wild game. And that was just market forces and market demand. People demanded meat. 
and they got meat from wild animals. But as soon as we switched to a conservation model of fish and game management in North America, that changed. And there became a realization that you need to manage these species. And you do it through selective hunting and essentially foraging. Same thing with plants. Now, there are no foraging seasons, but there have been some states proposing that idea. There's, for, there's some foraging seasons on mushrooms that are imposed, but not on plants necessarily. But I think there will be someday. I bet you'll have to buy foraging licenses for certain plants someday. And you probably should, honestly, if you really want to manage the landscape in a sustainable way, that might be a good idea. I mean, I love being able to just walk out and get whatever plants I want. I mean, there's wild fennel growing everywhere. It would suck if I had to buy a license to go get wild fennel. But that may come into play at some point because there is a way to properly conserve landscapes, whether it's native species on a landscape or invasive species on a landscape. Now, sometimes you can be more liberal taking invasive species because they adapt to a landscape very, very well. And a lot of times they outcompete the native species, and that's why they take over. That's what happened to these wild oats in Northern California, especially. They took to these hillsides, these gentle rolling hillsides, like wildfire. Okay. And you start crowding out oaks that would have grown in manzanita, in madrona, in pine. Right, You start choking out this native plant population that was here and thriving at one time. You know, things like blackberries and huckleberries. All that starts to kind of fade away because a singular plant starts kind of encroaching on habitat. And then that changes the animals on that landscape. Because what happens if you're an animal that can't eat wild oats, that has no use for it? Well, you die off or you have to move to a new location and migrate to find food again. So there's this domino effect that happens as soon as new species are introduced and start taking over in a natural landscape, right? You see it with edge habitats, like beaches. You see it on every landscape there is. And really, the answer is conscious management. And that means taking it off of the landscape when there's an excess to restore balance. And that means death. All of this means death. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about killing species to not only conserve the species and keep a good carrying capacity on the landscape, but to let other things thrive. You know, a good forest management program, you have to thin out the forest to let the trees grow. Otherwise, they don't get enough sunlight. So you have to clean up things. You have to actively cut down and manage things in a forest to have it grow and to have life go in there and be able to thrive. Now, that's very different than just going in and clear-cutting a forest. That's not a sustainable method, and that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a conscious way to manage environments, but it has to be done on an individual environment level and an individual species level. So you need to know what species are inhabiting that particular environment in that particular location to be able to manage that. And that takes a lot of resources. And it takes people that are actively engaged and have a relationship typically with those species that want to protect them in the first place. Because this activist idea of just hands off and everything will be fine, it's just not the case. It's a complete fallacy. That would be really nice if it was the case, but it's not. Because it takes active management and it takes people that are actively engaged. 
And to put it blatantly, that means death. I mean, if you look at our biggest crops in the United States, it's wheat, corn, soya, rapeseed, okay? Every farmer has to manage his fields. That's why you have farmers to begin with, because if you could just plant the stuff and not touch it and then collect it, farmers wouldn't have to work very hard, would they? But that's not the case, especially when you're planting monocrop farming, because then pests, such as you find on corn crops, these beetles feed on the stalks and leaves of corn, which weakens the corn's immunity and allows funguses to invade and it ends up killing the plant. And so farmers have to combat that with glyphosate, which is a neurotoxin for these pests. So it's this never-ending battle of different species trying to eat different species. And as you go higher and higher up the food chain, a lot of times we kill things so we can eat that same species that other things are trying to eat. You see what I mean? It is so integral in this system that we're all a part of that there's no denying it and there's no getting away from it. Even in processed foods, you don't get away from it. That starts as some type of natural product and it's reduced or synthesized way, way down to become those wheat thins or to become those triscuits. You know what I mean? You always start with raw products. And in nature, that means there's always things that are feeding on those products. Oh, here's another example for you. This is a good one. You know that beneficial bacteria that we all love to talk about that's inhabiting our GI tract? Yeah, that consumes your tissue when you die. It almost immediately leaves your small intestine, goes into your abdominal cavity and starts consuming your flesh from the inside. There is no escaping becoming food. We all will become food. You know, we love to talk about how that beneficial bacteria is just helping us through our entire life. And nobody talks about the end. And no one gets mad at the bacteria for doing this. We don't get mad at our own bacteria or anybody else's bacteria. It's a part of life. But we can get really mad when somebody kills an animal. We don't get mad at other predators on the landscape for killing animals. That's their natural instinct. But as a human animal, people get really upset when you do that because we've become more and more disconnected, not only from food, but for what food actually is. Food is death, period, full stop. And the sooner you can start to frame that in your mind, the easier this whole thing is going to be. Because guess what? It turns out the healthiest things to build your tissues and to build your blood out of are things off of a landscape. That is what you are biologically designed to do. You're designed to integrate those once living species into your own body, into your own cells, and into your own blood. You don't get proper nutrition from an ultra-synthesized version of those whole products. We have taken our definition of nutrition and worked it so far into a reductionist framework that we've lost sight of what it actually is. Nutrition is food. Food is parts of species. You eat those parts of species, your body derives its inherent nutrition from them and assimilates it into your tissue. This is what everything that is living on this planet does. Every single species. And to think that we are different or we are better than any other species, 
is one of the most foolish things I have ever heard. It's ridiculous. And to think that we can use technology or science to use synthetic versions of these foods or products and derive the same nutrition, it will never happen, ever. Again, you don't get these synthesized products from thin air. They come from a living natural environment, a manipulated one. That's what conventional agriculture is. It's a manipulated natural environment using a lot of times toxic agents like glyphosate, but a living natural environment nonetheless. We will never, ever be able to escape the reality of death. You have to use death to stay alive. And then when you die, something else or somebody else, and yes, we do use people when they die. And if you don't believe me, look to what we're doing to 300,000 people every single day. We're using human DNA to vaccinate people. And I'm not saying that there's human fetal tissue in the vaccine, because that is not true. What I am saying is that those cell lines were used to develop those vaccines. And then they use synthetic versions of that to replicate in the production. Now, the other ones, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca that's used in Europe, they do use fetal lines. We're using fetal tissue. We're using humans that have prematurely died. And we're putting that into our own bodies. So yeah, we do use each other. Or if that's too much of an extreme example, stem cells are the same deal. Fetal stem cells that build our body. There are tons of examples of this, of humans using dead humans to heal their bodies. And you can dress up the language all you want, but in reality, that's what's happening. People use other people's body parts to stay alive. What about liver transplants or heart transplants, right? It's okay to use other people's parts to stay alive. This is how the world goes. This is the harsh reality. Maybe not even harsh. This is just the reality of living on this planet. There's no escaping it, no matter how hard you try. And matter of fact, the more you push it and fight against it, the worse things become on this planet. Because the more and more divorced you become to this planet. You become foreign to your own planet, to your own home. You separate yourself from the natural world and therefore food and death, because those always go hand in hand. And the more you do that, the more you're going to separate yourself from yourself. And that is a real problem, because the second you stop paying attention to your body and to your internal mechanisms, you unlearn skills of becoming aware of your body and what it needs. See, that's the true problem with nutrition today. People are unaware of what their body needs at any given time. People don't pay attention any longer to how they actually feel. How they feel after they eat a meal, how they feel before they eat a meal, what they need to feel different. People used to know what types of food they needed to evoke a particular response in their body. We don't think about it very often anymore. Some of us might, but the majority of the population doesn't. We reach for the convenient thing, the thing that tastes good, the thing that just stimulates the brain. You have to build your body out of other bodies. 
It may sound a little weird until you really start thinking about it, but that's what you're doing. You're building your body from other bodies, and it's okay, because everything on this planet does that. Everything down from a tiny bacteria cell to a viral cell to a cheetah hunting a gazelle. We all do this, and it is okay, because it keeps things balanced. And I'm not saying there isn't major issues that need to be resolved. But if we can just approach this and take it for what it actually is, instead of using this reductive approach to especially nutrition, then it becomes a lot clearer and it simplifies a lot of the jargon that misses the point in the larger context of what food and nutrition actually are. And it's no wonder people are lost. They've lost sight of what food actually is. And if you lose sight of that, then of course you're not going to really understand what nutrition is. Because food is nutrition. So you're starting from a place of misunderstanding from the get-go. I mean, a lot of us don't even know and don't have a relationship with the foods that we eat every day. How many people know that the brassica family for example, in the plant world, is everything from cabbage to broccoli to kale to kohlrabi to cauliflower to collard greens. It is all the same plant. Zero diversity in any of those plants. They're all brassica. Essentially, you're eating the same nutrition in all of those plants. You might, if you pick them up, the phenotypes would be different. The look of those plants would be different. But a cabbage is exactly the same as broccoli. It's the same species of plant. It just looks different. My wife, as a florist, works with brassica families all the time in her flower arrangements. You know what it's called in the floral world? It's called stock. Next time you're in a grocery store, go to the produce department. Look at cabbages, cauliflower, broccoli, kale, collard greens. Then, Go to the floral department and look at the flower stock. That is what broccoli used to look like. It's crazy, but people don't know that. And that plant, as I've talked about before, also has high goitrogens, which rob your body of iodine, which causes thyroid issues. So you can be eating these same species at a different phenotypic level nightly, year after year, thinking you're getting variety when you're actually not. You're getting overloaded with tons of goitrogenic compounds that steal iodine from your body and cause thyroid imbalances. When I talk about getting a relationship back with your food, knowing exactly what you're eating, this is what I'm talking about. And you can see this time and time again. People don't understand what they're eating anymore on a species level. And remember, all we're eating is parts of species. Just because they look different doesn't mean they're different. And there's nothing wrong with those plants. There's nothing wrong with brassica as a classification. But if that is what you're constantly eating and you don't give your body a break, then you're going to have some negative consequences. And that's why Getting a true variety of species in your diet is of the utmost importance. It's why I have developed a five kingdom approach, because it's the five sets of different species on this planet that we consume. 
You need variety, true, real variety. That balances your body. That feeds your microbiome. That turns into your tissue and your blood. I mean, guys, this is the take-home message. We are 27 minutes in. This is it. Get true variety. Get a difference of species in your diet as much as you possibly can. Don't just eat a single species from a single classification just because it looks different. Know the species that you're building your body from. Develop a relationship because the more you connect with the species you're eating, the more you're going to recognize how your body is feeling and how that species makes your body feel. It's just like developing relationships with people. You're not going to know if a stranger is acting a little weird or is a little off. You're going to know when one of your best friends is acting weird or a little off, when something's not right. It's no different with food. Remember, eating is the most intimate thing a person can partake in. It literally becomes your body. Don't forget what food is. Food is just parts of species that you build your body from. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. If you're getting a good variety of species, your body's going to be built from a good variety. And it's going to increase robust health. And it's going to increase nutrition. And you're going to negate the effects of eating the same species over and over again. You might be wondering about minerals and how that plays in with nutrition. And if you take something like salt, for example, you don't actually need to eat sea salt. You can get it through food in your diet. Now, I wouldn't recommend that because sea salt is actually very healthy for the diet. There's foods that have salts in there. So you can survive without sodium chloride. Now, there are some other foods that are kind of on the edge. Honey's a good example because that's kind of like bee throw up, bee puke. It's not necessarily a part of the bee, but bees create it and regurgitate it. Um, so there's some kind of edgier foods like that, but by and large, you're eating direct parts of plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, viruses, protists. And if you're getting confused on what foods you should be eating when, on what different species you should be eating, Follow the seasons. That way you can let the seasons kind of dictate your eating behavior. That's why eating seasonally has become such a trendy topic to talk about. That This is the point of seasonal eating. So you're increasing your species diversity. It's not portrayed that way. It's portrayed as some kind of trendy, fashionable way to be eating, kind of a new fad diet. But that couldn't be further from the truth. You eat seasonally to increase the amount of diversity in your diet. Again, in the anthropological data, you're looking at about two to three hundred different species eaten annually among hunter-gatherer populations. In the Western world, we eat about 30. Again, that data isn't extremely accurate, but that seems to be the rough trend. So this idea of seasonal eating, if you think it's just kind of eating one or two things per season, it's not. I mean, eating off of a landscape, you were eating essentially 200 times the amount of species that we eat today because we don't have to. We think we're getting variety because of phenotype changes, but we're not getting true diversity. And that's really important to keep in mind. So your main takeaway is this. It's build your body, build your blood with food that is freshly killed as it possibly can be because that's going to contain the most amount of nutrition. The farther you get away from what looks like natural food that can be killed, 
the less nutrition you're going to get. And what I mean by that, if you compare a potato versus a potato chip, you can see what a potato can turn into. Potatoes sprout all the time. You see eyes on the potatoes all the time. That's just a potato plant trying to grow out of itself. You don't see sprouts on potato chips. Are you with me? So if you keep in mind, I am eating parts of species. What does this part look like? Just like when I butchered and broke down that venison shoulder of the deer that I killed, I knew exactly what that was and where that came from. I was a direct participant in that. So the closer you can get to parts of species that you put in your body, the better nutrition you're going to have. Don't forget what food is. Keep it in the forefront of your mind if you get confused about what you should or should not be eating. Okay, so this is going to do it for the series of Forgotten Concepts in Nutrition. This has been a fun one for me. I hope that you've enjoyed it as well. As always, stay well, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 